Hello, Sky Watchers. Thanks for listening to the Royal Observatory's Look Up podcast. I'm Patricia. And I'm Bryony. And we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in March in this Cosmic Diary. When looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way, and other galaxies, it is important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. Allow about 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. If you are using a star app on your phone, then make sure you switch on the red night vision mode. If you're still buzzing with excitement due to the arrival of the new missions at Mars, then why not add the red planet to your observing list this month? Keep an eye on Mars throughout the month and you'll see the red planet make its way through the constellation of Taurus the Bull. On the evening of the 7th, Mars will lie between the Hyades and Pleiades star clusters, while on the evening of the 19th, a waxing crescent moon will lie to the left of Mars. If you do have a telescope, then have a look at both the Moon and Mars on the 19th. Scan the craters on the Moon along the Terminator, the dividing line between day and night, and you'll see shadows being cast inside those craters. Switch your view to the red planet and you just might spot the color variations on the surface of the planet. And while you're looking at Mars, why not give all the intrepid robotic explorers a big wave? For all those who have had enough of the cold winter weather, the good news is that warmer weather is coming. You might be wondering when spring begins and winter officially comes to an end. Well, that depends entirely on the definition that you are using. Astronomically speaking, spring begins at the March equinox, also known as the vernal equinox in the Northern Hemisphere. This year, the March equinox occurs on the 20th of March. For those living in the Southern Hemisphere, summer officially ends at the March equinox, which is known as the autumnal equinox. And so, as the name suggests, autumn will begin. At an equinox, the sun will shine directly on the equator, and there will be nearly equal amounts or hours of daylight and night throughout the entire world on this day. As for the meteorological definition for when spring begins, because the spring months in the Northern Hemisphere are usually the months of March, April and May, by this definition, spring begins a bit earlier, on the 1st of March. Irrespective of which definition you choose to use, for those living in the Northern Hemisphere, we can look forward to warmer weather and longer days soon. The constellation of Leo the Lion is one of the spring constellations and one of the few constellations that actually resembles its namesake and as an added bonus it's a constellation that is easy to spot. Scan the sky for a backwards question mark with a bright star at its bottom. This pattern of stars known as an asterism is called the sickle and it marks the head, mane and chest of the lion. On the night of the 24th, look to the left of the almost full moon and you should be able to spot the backwards question mark. The brightest star in the constellation is a star called Regulus. It's the star that marks the bottom of the question mark. To the unaided eye, Regulus may appear to be a single star, but it is in fact a quadruple star system. 
if you have a good pair of binoculars and a steady hand, have a look at Regulus and you might be able to see two points of light. The brighter point of light is a star called Regulus A, whose stellar companion is thought to be a white dwarf star, while the fainter point of light is the other pair of stars. Different cultures around the world have given names to the full moon of each month. Most of the names that were used today come from the Native American cultures. The full moon of March, which this year falls on the 28th of the month, was called the Worm Moon by Native Americans because of the worm trails that would appear in the newly thawed ground. The full moon will be in the constellation of Virgo, the Maiden, and although the bright moonlight will make it more difficult to see some of the stars, you should still be able to spot the brightest star of the constellation, the star Spica, lying just below the moon. Just as with Regulus in Leo, although Spica might appear to be a single star to the naked eye, it is in fact a multiple star system, in this case a binary, with one star being much brighter than the other. The two stars are so close that they whiz around their common centre of gravity, completing an orbit every four days. When looking for galaxies in the night sky with the naked eye, you might think that you're limited to only the Andromeda galaxy. But that's not necessarily the case for those living in the southern hemisphere. While Andromeda is our closest major galaxy, our Milky Way has two dwarf satellite galaxies, the large and small Magellanic Clouds. They are called dwarf galaxies because they are so much smaller than our Milky Way, with even the larger of the two being only about 14% the width of our own. They are much closer to us in the Andromeda galaxy, being only hundreds of thousands of lighters away rather than millions, are much smaller in our sky and are very near the South Celestial Pole, meaning that you really do have to be in the Southern Hemisphere to find these little clouds. If you are, take a look in the south to southwestern parts of the sky well after sunset, and even with your naked eye, you may be able to find these faint smudges. Look with a telescope, and you may even be able to make out some of the structure of these dwarf galaxies. And don't forget that for those of us living in the UK, the clocks go forward on the 28th of March. This marks the end of Greenwich Mean Time as we revert back to British summertime. If you take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to at ROG Astronomers. You may also want to check out our night sky highlights blog on our website, rmg.co.uk. But now it's time for our cosmic news. Welcome to the cosmic news part of our podcast. Every month, Bryony and I will choose a story that's broken in astronomy or space exploration. And then we'll talk to each other and to you about that story. And of course, you get to choose your favorite story by voting for it on our Twitter poll that goes out at the start of every month. And of course, this is not a competition, but... um. Well, it's not a competition. That's that's what I mean. Yeah, it's not a competition. But Patricia, um, who won? So long-time listeners uh, will know that I have only been on this podcast for a few months. Before that, Dara was uh, was Patricia's companion, uh, and she warned me when I took over from her that um, well, uh, that there may or may not be a little bit of a curse, or maybe I guess a blessing on Patricia, where she always manages to win. So. 
Patricia. Oh, well, Bryony, I can say that last month, um, in your case, you spoke about the Milky Way's Mexican wave and you brought back haunting memories of my failed attempt at creating a Mexican wave at a cricket match, which I will not go into again. And then I spoke about the One Small Step Act, which is about preserving human heritage in space. Now, I have to say when that vote went live on Twitter, it was incredibly close. So when I say incredibly close, for I think for the most part of that period that we had that vote open for, it was split 50-50. It honestly was. It was so close. But then just before the end, we had some votes come in that did swing things. Was it uh, was it a swing, maybe a wave? It was a small step, Brian. Oh, no. So the final result was 60-40. So it was incredibly close this time. But I, I have to tell listeners at this point already, I think if last month was close, this month if not going to be very, very close, I suspect you might take it because I know what you're going to be talking about and it sounds really, really interesting. I'd like to think so. Well, I I, I think it is, but, um, well, I'm happy to go first. Um, and as you know, and probably as many of the listeners know, when it comes to picking stories, I tend to stay close to home, relatively speaking, I suppose. If we look at the, the entire size of the universe, I, I prefer to stay in our backyard which is effectively the solar the solar system. Um, I do have a soft spot for it. Uh, and so this month's story is about the fact that astronomers have officially discovered the most distant object in the solar system. Ooh. So that's an ooh. Exciting. For the double ooh, it has been nicknamed Far, Far Out. <laughs> Which I think is possibly the best name given to an object ever. Unfortunately, it has now been given an official name, which is the rather Ooh. less catchy 2018 AG37. Now, of course, that might be its official name now, but you know, sometimes we might rename things. I mean, you know, the we I don't know, I might petition with the International Astronomical Union that we keep far, far out mm-hmm. and that any subsequent object that's further out, we just keep adding a far at the beginning. Oh, I like that. You know what we could do? We could even have it, uh, you know, like scientific notation, how you have like 10 to the whatever. You can have far to the to the X. Now, you see, Bryony, we have just solved all the naming convention problems. We'll just have far to the power of X out and yes. we'll use that for for every object. I may as well just stop the story there. We've sold. We've just, you know, I think that's a that's that that's it. Um, but yes, so I, okay, I'm I'm going to just type an email about this to to the IAU for a naming convention. But I'm back too far, far out, or as it would be far squared out. Oh, I like that. Yeah, I'll stop with the jokes. Okay, oh, please, back to the sides. <laughs> um, but if anybody's wondering just how far 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 out is uh this object is almost four times further from the sun than pluto is wow and based on what they've got uh, in terms of its uh, orbital uh, properties it takes almost 1000 years to complete one orbit around the sun but as you'll discover later on the story there's there's things that we have to take into account when we when we you know, work out orbits of objects in our uh, solar system. Um, but as for uh, the size of far, far out, if anybody's wondering, the current estimate is that its size is about 
400 kilometers. So that's a tricky one because it means it could potentially be an asteroid or it could be at the low end of being a dwarf planet. So there's a little bit of uncertainty about what it is. Actually, for those uh, listeners who may not be aware of the actual distinction between asteroid and dwarf planet, there are a, um, a number of criteria that dwarf planets must meet. So planets must be round, orbit the sun and clear their path. But yeah. dwarf planets just have to be round and orbit the sun. Yeah. Um, so the sort of barriers to whether this is an asteroid or a dwarf planet and is that key, is it round? Asteroids can be any shape, space yeah. potatoes, anything you like, but to be a dwarf planet, it must be round because its roundness is at least partially determined by its mass, whether or not it has enough mass that it can pull itself into that sort of uh, round spherical shape. And I guess if they can see that it's around 400 kilometers across, they can say it's around this mass, um, but of course, it's very, very difficult to determine the shape of something in space, which is, is something that I, I think is not often discussed or maybe realized. Yeah. I, and I think you've touched on just one aspect of studying objects in our solar system, but more importantly, studying objects that are incredibly far away from us because our solar system is an enormous place, although it's still tiny compared to the size of our galaxy but for us for studying it we're dealing with a very very big place and of course it's filled with all sorts of wonderful different types of objects and like you said we've got planets we've got the dwarf planets but we've also got moons and then we've got a really large percentage of what we call uh, space rocks which effectively can be thought of as building rubble because if we look across our solar system, that's what we find. We find lots of leftover building material from when our solar system came together. So a great analogy that I like to use is if uh, you can imagine yourself, you're going to be mixing up a batch of biscuits. And so you end up with that big ball of dough in the center that you're going to then take to make the biscuits. But no matter how hard you try, you always have bits up the edges of the bowl that inevitably just will not become part of that. So that's how I'd like to think of it. So you've got all these leftover bits of building rubble. And if we look at our solar system, one area of building rubble that will immediately spring to mind is obviously the asteroid belt, because that's one that a lot of people know about. So we talk about the asteroid belt between uh, Mars and Jupiter, which as the name suggests, filled with asteroids. <laughs> um, but there's actually another belt inside our solar system. And that is a region that starts just around the orbit of Neptune. And it's a region called the Kuiper belt. Yeah, I see. So, you know, I mean, filled with Kuipers, I'm assuming. Well, that, that would be that would be wonderful if we call them if we call them all Kuipers. But yes, the Kuiper Belt is actually named after an astronomer called Gerard Kuiper. There's an American astronomer who proposed the existence of this region. And this is the key thing is he proposed the existence of this region to explain where some uh, comets come from, the short period comets, because that was that was a whole uh, bit of confusion as to where they came from. Yeah. So he proposed the existence of that region. But the very first object to be discovered in the Kuiper Belt was only discovered in 1992. And the Kuiper Belt was proposed in the 50s. So there's a substantial amount of time between the proposal of this region and actually finding an object out there. Um, but yes, yeah, so the Kuiper Belt started around the orbit of Neptune. And now Neptune lies at a distance of uh, 30 astronomical units from the sun. So an astronomical unit is the average distance between the sun and the earth because our solar system is so big. 
we can't use kilometers. So we use astronomical units, um, but one astronomical unit is 150 million kilometers. So Neptune, 30 astronomical units. That's roughly where the Kuiper belt begins. And we think the Kuiper belt stretches out to about a staggering 1,000 astronomical units. 1,000 astronomical units? Yeah. That is, I mean, I knew that it was quite extensive, but that is larger than I thought it was. That's amazing. That's literally orders of magnitude. Yeah. So it's a huge, huge region and far, far out is inside the Kuiper belt. So uh, I said Neptune's at 30 astronomical units. Pluto is a smidgen under 40 astronomical units. Far, far out is at 132 astronomical units. So Compared to the size of the Kuiper Belt, it's actually still relatively close to home, but it is still incredibly far away from us um, in, in that sense. Wow. It, it blows my mind just how far away things can be and still be in the solar system. I mean, something else that also comes to mind is the fact that, for example, Neptune, um, it's 30 astronomical units away from us. But we need to remember that the light that it receives is even less than 30 times less than the light that we get here on Earth because light uh, is an inverse square law. Yeah. So actually it dims by the square of the distance. So Neptune is 30 astronomical units away, but it receives about 900 times less light than us here on Earth. So something that's 132 astronomical units away, I mean, I can't do that square in my head, but my... But it's big. It's a big number. And I'm glad that you raised that because that is precisely why it is difficult to observe objects in the Kuiper belt because they lie incredibly far from us and they're very small objects. And that's the problem when you're very tiny um, and often these objects are covered in dark materials as well, like uh, dust. And if they're rocky, they're not going to be reflecting that much light from the sun. So so the question is, okay, you know that those objects are incredibly tiny. You know that they're going to be difficult to observe. So so how do you do it, Bridie? How would you search for an object out in the Kuiper belt? I mean, I think I'd probably just sort of point a telescope and hope and just... Look. That's probably a really good summary. That's exactly what you do. So what you do is you take your biggest and best telescopes that you have available, your best and most sensitive detectors, and you do a survey, which is basically, like you said, you just take image after image of a patch on the sky over a period of time. And what you then do is you compare images. So that same patch of the sky, compare a series of images. And if you happen to spot teeny tiny points of light move between the images you might have seen something so that's basically how it works but of course just seeing a little movement between two doesn't mean you've necessarily found something you'd have to do follow-up observations and then see if there is a definite trend if this object actually is real so that's basically what happened with Far Far Out. So um, it was first spotted in 2018 and observations that were made by the Subaru telescope located on Mauna Kea in Hawaii. And that's precisely what the scientists were doing. They were imaging a patch of the sky. They had two images that were taken in January that year, spotted a point of light moving, and they were like, okay, we may have found something, but... Let's, let's just confirm this. And of course, if there is an object, what we want is we want more data to determine the object's orbit. So again, something we were talking about. So what they then did is actually then spent the next few years 
an F key. Yes. And then they also used the Carnegie Institution for Sciences Magellan Telescopes in Chile to determine the orbit. And once they got all of that information, then they could get a really good idea of the distance to far, far out. So based on their observations, uh, far, far out, they know is currently at a distance of 132 astronomical units. But because of this really highly elliptical orbit that it has, Ooh. at its furthest, it would be 175 astronomical units from the sun. Okay. But wait for this, Brian, you wait for this. But at its closest, it will come to 27 astronomical units. Inside the orbit of Neptune. Yes. So that means that far, far out will most likely interact gravitationally with Neptune at some point in the future. And now what they're suspecting is that far, far out was most likely actually thrown out into the solar system by getting a little bit too close to Neptune at some point in the past. So... I see? see, I see, because that can happen when things get too close to the gas giants, they might get pulled in and crunched up, or they might get sort of gravitationally, well, slingshotted. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's, and that's a point. So this is why we as much as we love the gas giants, well, let's put it this way, we love them when they throw objects out away from the earth, but we're not going to be very happy with them if they throw something our way. So no, no. but you know what, so far, fingers crossed, touch wood, so far, so good. So we're happy. Now, so here's an interesting point, Brian. Mm-hmm. The scientists who discovered far, far out also discovered far out, which <laughs> used to be the most distant known object in the solar system until the discovery of far, far out. Wow. I mean, I'm. this is giving more and more credence to our idea of just adding far onto it. Yeah, I think I think using far to the power of x is is the way to go. Um, we should. Start we, I, I think let's do that. Let's 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 put a petition in. I'm sure we'll get enough votes for this, Bryony. It's a it's a brilliant idea. Uh, but these scientists have, well, there's a reason they're studying the edge of the solar system. That sort of the boundary, the the point where we're really pushing technology at the moment, and that's because these scientists are actually on the hunt for planet X which is a small dwarf planet beyond Pluto, whose existence they proposed back in 2014. I see. So basically what they're trying to do is they're trying to find objects in the Kuiper belt, figure out the orbits of those objects to see whether there is a planet X out there. Now, the reason they're doing this actually touches to the way that Neptune was discovered because Neptune was predicted to exist before it was discovered because astronomers who were studying the orbits of Uranus realized that there were discrepancies between where they had calculated Uranus to be versus where it actually was. And that was because they didn't know about Neptune and Neptune's gravity was interacting with Uranus and perturbing the orbit of Uranus. So basically, if there is a planet X out there in the Kuiper belt beyond Pluto, then you would expect to see its gravity affecting the orbits of objects out in the Kuiper belt. So this is why they're studying that region. And in doing so, they've, as I said, they discovered far out, they've now discovered far, far out, and it probably won't be long until they discover far, 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 far out. out. But yeah, I just thought it was a really interesting story. And it's just a reminder, again, as you touched on, of the size of our solar system and the challenges 
of actually studying our solar system. And I think sometimes people forget that we, we naively assume that our solar system is easy to study compared to distant objects in the universe. But in actual fact, there are a lot of challenges just trying to study our own solar system. But anyway, from the solar system, from my story to yours, Bryony. So what have you chosen for this month? So this month I have kind of, I guess, kept with my theme of, I guess, you stay in the solar system and I very much venture out of the solar system. Now, uh, this month has, of course, been very much dominated by Mars missions, um, I think. In February, the whole world has been looking at Mars. And I mean, let's be honest, quite rightfully so. There have been some amazing things going on on the surface uh, and in orbit of the red planet. I mean, Perseverance rover landed. uh, They've released some of the sky crane footage. They're going to be releasing more of it. You can actually see Perseverance land. You can see from the Martian Reconnaissance uh, Orbiter straight away. They released images showing the MRO seeing the parachute land which was well, just I as you know Bryony um I <clears throat> am slightly obsessed with the red planet I'm, I'm containing my excitement because there was an image that was released today I think as I, I may have seen it on Twitter where you can see the plume of smoke in the distance from where the sky crane impacted the ground they actually captured that image from Perseverance and yes I'm going to contain my excitement because we're not here to talk about Mars even though it Yes, I'm very, very excited about it. And I'm, I'm looking forward to the pictures. And yes, you're quite right. Mars has been in the news and it probably will be for the next couple of months. I, I think expect. so as well. Yeah. But there has been quite a lot of other things going on. And I have to admit, I, I've been doing a lot of casual reading, you know, something will pop up and I'll, I'll give it a good bit of a read. But a lot of things I've been seeing have been mostly like things that are quite interesting in some ways, but nothing that is really grabbed my attention. Until, until I saw this, I mean, look, it's not quite as good of a title as last time as Milky Way Does the Wave, but it's a site that has been very recently released in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, and it's discussing the formation of supermassive black holes. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and this idea of having dark matter black holes. I know, right? I saw that and I was like, okay, this is fun. So I have, I've spent a bit of time, shall we say, having a read through the paper. It's really great paper uh, in the monthly notices. So it is uh, open access. Um, it's really, really interesting. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a preprint. Uh, it's not quite fully been published yet. So if you're interested, I'll leave a, a link to it in the description uh, as well as a link to the paper on Far, Far Out. So uh, let's, well, first of all, let's go back to how we understand black holes to form. Now, these are stellar black holes. Um, they form when massive star goes boom. Uh, essentially what happens is this massive star, as it rips itself apart, the remnant that is left will be above like three to four solar masses. So it'll be tiny. It'll be at this point compressed into an area that's like 20 kilometers. If you're going for your typical neutron star size, which is sort of a, a, a step before a black hole, but basically it's so heavy and there's so much stuff in such a small area that gravity just wins, just, just trying to pull us all together. Um, and there's lots of pressures that push things out. You know, um, you can't just continually force things tighter and tighter there is a point at which physics breaks down. And that point is, well, a black hole. Mathematically speaking, it's 
quite a simple object in many ways. The, the most simple black hole is a very simple object. It's a singularity, so a point of zero radius and infinite density, because that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But another interesting part of it is the event horizon, which is this point of no return. It's this idea that this singularity, it bends space-time such that if you are close enough to it, if you are less than a certain distance away from it, all of your light curves, that is all of your future, all the possible directions you can travel in the future, bend in and curve in towards the black hole. So essentially there is nowhere you can travel that doesn't lead you back into the black hole. It's a really interesting idea uh, and a really interesting consequence of general relativity. And it's really, really interesting looking at it, not just from the, the base understanding of, oh yeah, something that's so heavy, not even light can escape it, but looking at it from a space time perspective where space time is so warped that when you start to draw light cones, it starts to yeah. be completely warped in. Now, so I think perhaps we can put an advisory in here, Bryony, that should anyone want to go to a black hole, you're fine up until that point. Yeah, basically, yeah. Go yeah. across that point and there is no hope of return, but stay on the safe side of that point you should be okay i mean i would not advise i would also going there, no but, but um you know if you would like to you can in theory safely observe a black hole without falling in from be from before the event horizon beyond yeah. the event horizon we have no we have nothing no information can leave that's why it's it's kind of important to look at it not just from the point of view of so much gravity that the escape velocity is above the speed of light, but also looking at it from the perspective of a light cones, which yeah, it's this idea in, uh, in in relativity. I would highly recommend anyone who's interested in relativity, take a look at them. It's a really graphical way of picturing paths through space-time, so it's yeah. quite accessible in many ways. Now, here's the problem, though. This is for what is called stellar mass black holes. So that's what happens when a really large star goes boom, essentially. Now, a stellar black hole is sort of limited in the amount of mass that it can have, right? Because it's, it is a remnant of a star. Even the largest stars that we've found, they end up with relatively small black holes. Now, when I say relatively small, we're still talking about tens of solar masses. Yeah. The largest one found is around like 60 to 70 solar masses. But we need to remember that the black holes at the center of galaxies. Of galaxies, yeah. In the words of Muse, a supermassive black hole. And now the rest of the story is about the band Muse. But yes, you're quite right. Sometimes I think when people think of black holes, they're probably thinking of these stellar uh, mass black holes. Like, you know, a black hole, you know, doing its stuff in space by itself, not really doing anything else. And they often forget about the fact that we get supermassive black holes, which are the ones we find at the center of galaxies. And as the name suggests, Bryony, they are super massive. They are super, super, super massive. So the one at our own, uh, in the center of our own galaxy, it's called Sagittarius A star. It's got a mass of around 4 million solar masses. Okay, so that, that's quite a change from the 60 to 70 mass for a stellar mass black hole. Okay, so yeah, so they are super massive, yeah. So here is the problem. How did they form? Oh, because hmm. we don't have a, I mean, 
we can't have a star make them. So there's lots and lots of theories out there. And, you know, I am not a cosmologist, so I, I cannot speak on all of them. There are lots and lots of different ones, some suggesting that maybe black holes can merge together um, and in this merging create these massive black holes. Yeah. The idea that they can be seeded somehow. But then there was this whole idea of how do they form in, in terms of the galactic scale? Are they forming at the beginning of galaxies or are they co-forming with the galaxies? You know, do, are we going to find younger galaxies that don't have supermassive black holes? You know, we, I mean, we have found, I believe, some galaxies that don't have supermassive black holes necessarily, but we yeah. can't say for sure that they don't have them. It's sort of like unsure. So it's thought that, you know, maybe they could evolve with it. Maybe way back at the beginning of the universe, if we manage to keep on looking further and further back, we'll find evidence of black holes forming at least these supermassive black holes forming yeah. maybe we'll be able to capture that and so that's that's one of the ideas uh, around it I mean there's tons of them out there some of them weirder and wackier than others but a lot of this comes down to some really really interesting and really hairy mathematics which I think is one of I think it's one of the things that people maybe don't necessarily understand about cosmology you do sometimes get people kind of saying like, hang on, where is this coming from? This doesn't make sense. If you can just come up with anything, then why can't I? And then some people who do go, oh, well, I could say this and this. Well, you know, why is what I'm saying less relevant or valued than what you're saying? What you're saying is just as crazy. But we need to remember that what they're saying is backed up by a lot of maths. Yes, that <laughs> is very true. Yeah. That's a key thing is people will go through, they will solve Einstein's equations and not just Einstein's equations, but there's various thermodynamic equations. Thermodynamics is physics with teeth in so many ways. I love it, but it is, it, it's a hairy subject. And to understand these equations and know enough about them to fiddle around with them to see, okay, well, what can I do? How can I create something that's one thing stable? That's yeah. a big problem as well. As we, these black holes seem to be pretty stable, but create yeah. something that fits in with everything else in the universe, but also create something that is distinctly other yeah um, so some scientists from a university in argentina uh universidad nacional de la plata um, i don't speak spanish so national university of la plata they have re-looked at these equations uh, they've gone back from like thermodynamic equilibrium point of view as well as cosmological point of view at uh, really beautiful equations uh, i wish people could see your your reaction on screen because you saw those and i could see you just there was this little twinkle in your eye at seeing these equations which uh, for the most part if I'm being honest if I looked at those equations now after not having seen equations like that for years I'd probably break out into a sweat so I'm gonna enjoy that you're you're appreciating and brining but yes so sorry continue about the the hairy equations yeah yeah so um so what they've done is they've gone through and they have looked at the potential of having a sort of dark matter seeded supermassive black hole. This solves some other things as well. So when we have a look at galaxies, one of the strongest evidences for dark matter is the galaxy rotation curve. So for those of you who, uh, who don't know what that is, when we have a look at how objects are rotating inside the galaxy, so sort of as part of the galaxy, uh, what you expect is for the speed to drop off as you leave the center. Yeah. However, galaxy rotation curves are actually quite flat. So and it doesn't drop off as expected. Exactly. And this suggests there is some mass in there, some matter in there that is behind this. And that is hypothesized as dark matter and um, there's a lot of other evidence of course but that's part of it and so it's uh, thought that 
galaxies have this dark matter halo. So, you know, they are looking at the dark matter halo and saying, okay, well, that's there, but can it support a compact object at the center? Can they have a really, really dense concentration of matter at their center? And what could that mean for supermassive black holes? What does it mean for their formation? What does it mean for their stability? They've shown that these dark matter halos can sustain a, a dense, a compact object at their centers. And it's saying, okay, well, what does this mean? which I think is, it's really, really interesting. And it's a really fun thing, I think. It's, I love it when you take questions in physics and use them to answer some questions and create more questions along the way. Uh, and yeah. I really enjoy that, that sometimes it might seem like we're just sort of throwing stuff at a wall and seeing what sticks, but it's a lot more delicate than that. It's a, it's, yeah. it's a lot more delicate than that. And also this is why articles are published in peer-reviewed journals. And by publishing your science out into these journals, that, that's how you get debate about topics because you will have other research groups who might look at it and say, oh, we don't agree with that, but we're going to go off and do our own independent study and see what, come, what we come back with. Or you could have another group who might say, well, we've been thinking about this and this is really great that you've done something. So, you know, let's, let's also have a look at this and do our own independent study. So that's, that's the great thing about this is, as you say, is that they're just coming out and saying, hey, look, this is what happens when we, with our model. What do you think? And that's the good thing about the way that research is done. And how it should be done is they're not just coming and saying, well, we've solved the problem. We can close the book. We don't need to do any more research. Exactly. Yeah, I think it's really great as well that not only do these things get put forward in these peer-reviewed journals, people look at it and then can take them on to do their own research as well. It's that some of it does get filtered down and put into the popular science realm as well. And I, as much as I say, oh, you know, it kind of sucks that people might read it and get the wrong idea, think that we're just coming up with whatever we want. I do think it's really important that this you know, new active science does remain in the public eye, does remain yeah. present. And that's true. And also, even just from a purely inspirational point of view, that people who read it could well be secondary students, they could be university students, and they'll read something like this and go, wow, this is a whole area of research I didn't know about. And they could go in and they could I want to say be the next Einstein, but they could be greater than Einstein. They could come in and completely revolutionize something. So, yes, yeah, so I'm really happy that research filters down and that the public can hear about the great work that's being done. As I said, it, because I just find it in many cases to be inspirational. And also, if I'm being perfectly honest, it makes it easier for me to understand in some cases because there are areas that. I must be honest, I have not done in many, many years and I'll read something and, and I can't remember the equations. I can't remember some of the stuff. So um, it's it's good for us as well, because then it brings back some of the memories of going, oh, I, something in the back of my mind is lighting up when I'm reading about, you know, all of these weird and wacky places like black holes. But a brilliant story, Bryony. And I think, I think... I think it's going to be a tough battle, this one, on Twitter. I really do, because I think if I put the word dark matter black hole out on the Twitter poll. True, true. But you also do have far, far out. Okay, this is going to be a very, very good one. And I look forward to... to Battle of the buzzwords. 
Battle of the Buzzwords. We'll, we'll, of course, let everyone know who's won in next month's podcast. But, um, yes, yeah, so there you have it. Two stories for you for this month, two stories for you to vote on. So do keep an eye on our Twitter account at the start of the month where you can then cast your vote for your favorite story. And as always, we would appreciate feedback from people. So if you'd like to let us know what you enjoy about our podcast, if there's anything you'd like us to talk about. And for those living in the Southern Hemisphere, are you enjoying hearing about things that are up in your night sky? It's nice for Bryony and I to talk a little bit about the skies we no longer see. Exactly. <laughs> um, while we grasp to get familiar with the Northern Hemisphere sky, it's nice just to throw a couple of Southern Hemisphere uh, bits out there but yes we've got so many wonderful things happening at the moment so uh we've got obviously a night sky highness vlog please keep an eye out for that that will be on the website from the start of the month as well but we've also got things like online planetarium shows so if you have not yet done that please do so you get to tour the universe from your living room and i think that that's a brilliant thing to do and you never know it could be delivered by either briny or myself it depends on the rostering so you never know who's going to be taking you through the universe you might get a familiar voice yeah maybe yeah or or you'll be like this i don't know these but you'll you'll tell it's briny and i immediately you'll go i know those voices those are the two crazy ladies who do the podcast <laughs> but yeah we've got a whole bunch of wonderful resources as well so uh, we've got our shiny new youtube channel so please do have a look at that and more importantly hit the subscribe button and if you aren't already doing so please do follow us on twitter at rog astronomers but for now, I think we'll wish everyone clear skies and we look forward to chatting with all of you again in next month's podcast. Mm -hmm.